I have to admit that of the movies that are out there to watch, The Princess Bride is one of my favorites. If you've ever seen that movie, you know there's a lot of memorable scenes in that movie that just make it fun. One of those scenes that I'm thinking of this morning is when Wesley, under the, the guise of the dread pirate Robert, is chasing Vizzini and, and Fezzik and Inigo because they've taken Buttercup captive and, and he's knocked out both Fezzik and Indigo and then he finally catches up with Vizzini and he challenges this Sicilian mastermind of the trio to a battle of wits. The challenge is simple. Wesley is going to take some Iocane powder and dump it into one of two goblets and then Vizzini can choose whichever goblet he wants to drink and... Wesley will drink the other goblet. Now, Iocane, which is actually a fictitious thing, is, is presented as being the most poisonous substance on earth. So it will be instant death to, to drink from the goblet with that in. Well, Vizzini attempts to dazzle everyone with his wits and then trick Wesley and chooses a goblet and drinks and promptly dies. And Wesley has rescued Buttercup. And as he does that, he reveals that he actually put Iocane powder into both goblets. That's why Vizzini picked one with, with Iocane powder in. But Wesley himself has developed an immunity by, by slowly working his way up over the last five years so that now he could handle Iocane. He was prepared for the event. It's a movie, okay? I know, it's cheesy, it's funny. But you just kind of have to go with it. it it's... It's how things work in movies, but it also spotlights one thing that I want us to see that is truth. You know, the thing that makes a movie like this so good is it does spotlight many truths in our lives. It, it, it highlights them in kind of funny fashion and ex, expands on them, but it shows us truths. And, and one of the things we see in this particular scene is the idea that a wise person is prepared for the possibility of suffering. As you can see on the, the screen this morning by the title of the sermon, suffering is the focus of our text here this morning. After the, the Christmas and the New Year's holidays and the, the breaks that we've taken for that, we're returning to our series this morning that we set aside, the, the series in Peter's first letter. We're, we're coming back to the, the central section of this letter where we, we left it off in early December. Peter's dealt with several specific types of relationships in, in this section of his letter. And various relationships that subgroups within the church have. In, in every case, as Peter's dealt with how the church members in that subgroup should relate to whatever the relationship is, the point he's made overall is that the gospel's advance ought to be primary of concern. As believers... We are to relate to the unbelieving world around us. He's made that point over and over again. As we relate to unbelievers around us, we're not to hide away in a holy huddle. Rather, we're to relate to the world around us in a holy manner. And as we engage with the world in this holy manner, we're to show them that, that we have been impacted by the gospel message. Our salvation makes a difference. And part of that difference then will further the advance of the gospel itself. In every interaction with unbelievers, we are to magnify the work of Christ 
and what he has accomplished through the gospel. We magnify the work of Christ by reflecting his work in our lives, but we also magnify it by reflecting his work through our lips, communicating it to others around us. Everything we do, then, every relationship that we have should have a concern for advancing the gospel witness. Now, as believers, we relate to unbelievers, but we also relate to one another, to other believers. We, we spent a couple of weeks before Christmas looking at the marriage relationship. And the marriage relationship, ideally, as we saw in, as we looked at it, is between two believers. That's the ideal marriage relationship. And as Peter addressed their wife, he, he recognized in that that there may be cases, though, where a believer is married to an unbeliever. And even then, in that case, the, the gospel advance should be the concern. When he went, switched over to addressing the husband, then he used the scenario where you've got two believers. And again, the gospel witness was a concern. Consistently, whether it's an unbeliever or another believer, the idea of that the gospel advance should drive our interactions. Similarly, in the very last verses we looked at in chapter 3, before we set the series aside, Peter broadened out the relationships that we have between marriage to relationships throughout the church, general relationships we have with other believers. And the main idea he conveyed is still that same one. Our interactions with each other are to advance the gospel. From all of these sections, we, we should really get the idea that the gospel advance is a concern for us. After he makes the point over and over and over, even dim people like us should get that idea that what we do should serve to advance the gospel. When we have to decide on a course of action or when we have to decide on how we are going to react to a situation, we need to stop and think what will most effectively aid in the advance of the gospel. The gospel message, the, the message that magnifies our Savior, that, that points to, to God's glory, that is primary for us in everything. This morning, as I've already mentioned, we're moving into the topic of suffering. Remember, Peter is writing to believers who are suffering. These are believers who are spread out through what we would now consider Asia Minor. It was various provinces of, of the Roman Empire at that time, and, and these believers are experiencing various degrees of suffering because they were Christians. It was suffering that came because they were associated with Christ. For them, suffering is a real-life concern. This is not a hypothetical thing. This is, is real. And now he addresses suffering this experience that they're going through in the flow of encouraging the gospel advance. We are not currently suffering because we are Christians. But that does not mean that it might not come suddenly into our lives. We need to hear what, what Peter tells us in these verses as he writes these words of challenge as well as encouragement. Because we need to hear that Peter challenges us that we should prepare ourselves for possible suffering. We should prepare ourselves for possible suffering. As we work through the verses this morning, 
we can spot five ideas that should help us, that, that should come along and guide us for possible suffering in our preparation. Follow along, if you would, as I read the verses, picking up in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you for, to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. We should prepare ourselves for possible suffering. The, the first idea that, that we can spot in this passage that, that will help us in this preparation is that we should anticipate that suffering might come. Anticipate that suffering might come. I, I trust that, that we all understand that the, the kind of suffering that I'm referring to is specifically the kind that comes because of being a Christian. We, we will certainly all suffer simply by living in this sin-cursed, sin-broken world. That, that's a reality of life. We will suffer the infirmities of age. We will suffer the ravages of disease. We, we, we might suffer the catastrophes of accidents. We will experience pain and grief and, and all kinds of things like that through the natural course of life simply because our life is lived in a broken world. But that's not the kind of suffering that Peter is addressing in these verses. He's addressing the kind of suffering that takes on a, a particular poignant sense because it comes for doing what is right. It's suffering that comes because of being publicly identified as a Christian. And when we serve our Savior, doing what our Savior has declared as being right, suffering that comes for that reason. If the suffering, he writes in verse 4, because we stand firmly on the side of righteousness. This is kind of suffering that's exemplified in Reformation believers who were burned at the stake or, or our Baptist forebearers who were drowned as they were thrown bound into lakes. Believers have been imprisoned for their faith. Believers have seen their possessions confiscated because of their faith. In parts of the world, even now, Christians fear having their children taken away because they have taught them of Jesus Christ. That's the type of suffering that we are considering as we look here at Peter's letter. This is the type of suffering that I mean when, when I put up this point that we should anticipate that suffering might come. Not suffering because we simply live in this world, but suffering because we are Christian. Look at verses 13 and 14. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? 
That, that's a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question designed with an obvious answer. Peter says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for doing good? The, the, the rhetorical answer that should come to your mind is no one. The, the general expectation is that no one will harm us if we do that which is good. We, we don't expect people to throw physical harm or, or verbal abuse at us when we do what is right, what is good. Yet Peter goes on, he adds verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. That even if you should suffer part, that, that's where the problem comes in. We don't have a problem in, with verse 13 when we think through who will hurt us for doing right and we say, well, no one. The problem comes in when he throws in even if. The implication is that you might suffer even though you're doing what is right. In fact, you might suffer, as he says, for the sake of righteousness. Because of righteousness. Because you're committed to doing what is right. That might bring suffering on. The world hates God. The, the world hates God. But God defines what is right. So the world might just decide to hate what is right and to hate those who then do what is right. That's the even if part. Peter goes on, or Peter here, as he writes this, he uses an interesting grammatical construction, a rather unusual one in verse 14. And again, he uses the same construction in verse 17. It's, it's rather unusual. I, I won't go into the details, but, but it's a form that, that sort of does two things at once in Greek. One, one it indicates that a possibility exists. The, the potential is real. But two, it, it demonstrates that, that the circumstances is not a guaranteed eventuality. The possibility exists, but there's no guarantee that it will happen. That's what I mean when I say here that we should anticipate that suffering will come. The, the reality is that the most Christians have lived their lives without experiencing direct suffering because of the name of Christ. When we look at, at the history of Christianity to, for the past 2,000 years, the majority of Christians have not suffered because they are Christians. At the same time, Christians have suffered because of their faith at every time of history. Christians suffering because of their faith has never been uncommon in church history. Suffering is not a constant experience of the church. It is not a constant experience in a Christian's life. Yet it is a threat that could erupt at any point in time. The first way in which we prepare ourselves for possible suffering is to accept that it could happen. We anticipate that it might come so that it, if it does come, we will not be surprised. We will not be shaken. We will not be paralyzed by it. Think about when a gunman shows up at a political rally. A political rally where we have secret service involved. When a gunman shows up, the gathered crowd responds with shouts and frantic attempts to flee from the gunman. The secret 
service members respond very differently. They respond by smothering the person they're protecting with the screen of their body. They, they respond by other members swarming the area where the gunman is at. Other secret servicemen look and see if there's a secondary gunman somewhere. Guns are drawn and utilized, if necessary, in seconds. Now, these same secret servicemen have likely attended hundreds of political rallies by this point in their career where no gunman has ever shown up. But they have anticipated that it could happen, so therefore they are prepared when it does happen. They've anticipated it, and they are not surprised. We should prepare ourselves for possible suffering. We begin first as we anticipate that suffering might come. The second idea that will help us with our preparation when it comes to suffering is that we ought to continually prevent self-inflicted suffering. Continually prevent self-inflicted suffering. In, In verse 14, Peter indicates that suffering for the sake of righteousness is actually a blessing. We'll talk about that a little bit more in, in a short time. But, but first, we need to ensure, as Peter makes clear, that we're not suffering for doing what is wrong. We need to make sure that we're suffering for doing right, not wrong. There, there's no blessing from God that, that comes from enduring suffering that we bring on ourselves. If we suffer because we've been jerks, we're getting what we deserve. We need to be honest with ourselves. If we find ourselves suffering, why is it happening? Is it self-inflicted? For example, there, there are more times than either of us would like to admit when grace is, is um, less than thrilled with me. I'll, I'll put it that way. Now, I'm not calling this suffering. Let me be clear here. I want it on record. I am not suffering by being married to grace. I'm just pointing out that there's times where she is not quite happy with me. And and if I honestly assess those times, her frustration is usually self-inflicted on my part. I've been insensitive, or I've been selfish, or I've been rude, or one of those many other numerous faults that I have. And I've generated frustrations through my actions that have resulted in her expressing her unhappiness toward me. When, when I experience anger, it's self-inflicted on my part. And sadly, we can operate as Christians in a very similar fashion. We can generate self-inflicted suffering as we live in this world. The suffering may have a loose connection to our faith, but the real cause is our own actions. This is something that we must continually prevent. Remember, we we always represent Christ as as men and women who carry his name. We go through this world representing Christ. We must continually prevent self-inflicted suffering by avoiding sinful actions toward the unbelievers around us. And when we fail in that regard, we need to ask their forgiveness. We should prepare ourselves for possible suffering. We must continually prevent self-inflicted suffering. That's idea number two. 
Idea three, we must predetermine a godly response to suffering. Predetermine a godly response to suffering. Uh, a couple minutes ago, I used the secret servicemen as an example. Uh, as those who anticipate suffering, well, they also serve as a great example of a predetermined response. They, they react as they do to the gunmen because they have predetermined. Their, their response as a group is so comprehensive because they have predetermined, here's what we will do. Those closest to the protectory, they know that their duty is to shield the, the, the person. Those who find themselves closest to the shooter, they know that their duty is to swarm him. Others know that they are to bring in the evacuation vehicle or, or they are to manage the crowd so it doesn't surge toward the protectory or clock, clog the exit lanes. They, they scan for second shooters in other groups. They all know their responsibility because they predetermine before it ever happens what they will do. Well, Peter points out in verse 16 that our response to suffering for the name of Christ should be similarly predetermined. Look at what he writes. Picking up the last words of verse 15, which really tie to verse 16. It's one of those places where we don't put the verse break very well. But with gentleness and reverence, and then literally having a good conscience, if we translate that literally, with gentleness and reverence, having a good conscience, so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. What, what he's telling us is that we need to have determined beforehand that when we experience suffering, when we suffer for the name of Christ, the only response that we will have is one of gentleness and reverence. We, we could even translate that as meekness and respect. We will respond in that fashion when we suffer. The last things Christians should do is speak harshly toward those persecuting them. The last thing Christians should do is, is, is be obnoxious in their response. A Christian is to always display the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that should characterize our response that is vitally important at, at all times in our lives, but it's vitally important when extra eyes are, are on us because suffering has placed eyes of the world upon us. The Christian's goal is to respond in such a way that he or she will have a good conscience, one that affirms obedience to God and God's word in, in all that has been done. I remember several years ago, I attended a, a city council meeting here in our city when the council was considering an ordinance which would grant special protection to LGBT community at that time. The, the ordinance was, was framed in such a way that it would place the ordinance at odds, actually, with protecting religious liberty. I distinctly remember one man who, who spoke in opposition at the meeting. He, he rightly stated, and, and let me put that down, he rightly stated that, that the LGBT community were attempting to have the city support immoral standards that, that were a violation of God's law. He was right in that. Unfortunately, he, he stated his point 
while calling the mayor numerous unkind names, used an extremely vulgar language to refer to the, the things the ordinance would support, to the point where he was forcibly removed from the building for his ungodly behavior, while claiming he was representing Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to predetermine that we will respond in a godly manner when we suffer. That we will respond with gentleness and respect. Our, our response should model that of Hugh Latimer, a, a man who was burned at the stake in England, England for his faith in Jesus Christ. Latimer is quoted only for the encouraging words that, that he gave to Nicholas Ridley, uh, Ridley, who was burned alongside him, he said, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light switch a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. There was no harsh anger, vitriol directed towards those who were lighting the flames. There was godly character. We should prepare ourselves for possible suffering. We're looking at several ideas as we go through this passage here that will help us prepare. The third one here being that we must predetermine a godly response to suffering. Number four, or fourth idea, is that we must recognize that God's will can include suffering. God's will can include suffering. I, I mentioned earlier that Peter used that unusual construction in verses 14 and 17 to indicate that, that these possibilities, while real, are not guaranteed. Look at verse 17. That's the second time this construction shows up. He says, If God should will it so, it being suffering for the sake of righteousness, if God should will suffering for the sake of righteousness, as I stated, suffering is not an unavoidable eventuality in this life it's not guaranteed that we will suffer for for our faith but it is a possibility and we need to recognize peter says as he repeats this idea really as a bookend on on this paragraph we need to recognize that the one who determines whether or not this will occur in our life is god it's not the hostile world that, that determines when we will suffer. It's not a hostile world that determines which believers should suffer. It's not any personal adversary who's, who has made it their mission to wreck the life of one of us believers. It is God. Ultimately, God's will alone is determinative whether we suffer. As I'm sure you know by now, there's a book club in church that's reading through John Piper's book, Providence. Cheryl is starting to grin from ear to ear, as, as she does every time we mention this book. It's a great book. Well, John Piper deals with suffering in the book, and, and he makes the point as that there is encouragement for us in knowing that it is not random, meaningless chance. It's not a, a, an un personalized fate that determines our suffering. It's even more encouraging to know that it's not the vindictiveness of someone who hates us 
someone who is seeking our destruction that determines our suffering. Satan, who hates us, is not determinative. Satan's tools who hate us are not determinative. Rather, it is the will of our God, our God who loves us so much that he sacrificed his own son for us. It is the will of our God who's demonstrated his faithfulness to us by forgiving our sins despite our rebellion against him. It is the will of our God who promises that everything he brings into our lives will ultimately bring glory to him and good to our spiritual lives. It is our God who ultimately determines whether we suffer. We certainly may never understand in this life how our suffering will accomplish such glorious purposes. Our God has promised it will. We should never either discount the, the misery that suffering entails. Because it brings glory to God does not mean it is not miserable to suffer. So let's not just glibly discount it. But simply knowing that suffering is totally and completely under God's sovereign hand has enabled centuries of believers to endure suffering with joy in God. And that knowledge can do the very same thing for us. When it comes to preparing ourselves for suffering, then we need to lock in this truth. We need to understand in the very core of our being, before the agony ever arrives, before the pressure strikes, that it is our God who reigns that brings it into our life. Any suffering comes only by His decree. And... This is an important and. And God's will for us can include suffering. There's nothing special about us. There's no reason to think that we are the Christians that God would not do this to. God is the potter. We're simply the clay. God can use us as he sees fit. We are nothing more than tools in his hand that will bring glory to his name. Suffering is one of the tools that God uses to shape the vessels that ultimately bring glory to him. Suffering may be the tool that God has designed for our lives. He might have designed his plan so that our lives will pass through the valley of suffering. We should prepare ourselves for the possibility Part of that preparation is recognizing that God's will can include suffering. And finally, idea number five in our preparation, plan to use suffering as gospel opportunity. Plan to use suffering as a gospel opportunity. Remember, this entire paragraph is, is in this section of Peter's letter that's been flowing through this idea over and over again. Everything is to advance the gospel. The gospel advance is the priority for our lives because that brings glory to God. There's glory that God receives as more and more image bearers start praising the one whose image they bear and they cannot do that till they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It should come as no surprise then that even suffering should serve as an opportunity for the gospel to advance. In the center of this paragraph, Peter makes that point explicit. Look at verse 15. Always being ready, or as many translates, translations have it in English, they, they give a more imperatival force, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. There, there is nothing natural about responding to suffering in a godly fashion. There's nothing natural. It is supernatural. The, the natural response to suffering is to escape. To escape no matter what it takes to do so. If you must lie, then lie. If you must fight, then fight. If you must deny your faith, then deny your faith. That is the natural response to suffering. Calmly accepting suffering as God's will for your life in responding in a gentle, respectful manner toward those who are persecuting you, that is completely unnatural. And such unnatural questions or such unnatural reactions will draw forth questions. Why are believers such strange creatures? Why do they do what is so unnatural? What is this faith that, that gives them such unnatural inner strength that they can accept suffering so calmly? Could they know something that I don't know? Earlier I mentioned Hugh Latimer. Latimer made it clear during his trial that he was willing to accept death even, if necessary, because the gospel message that he proclaimed as the only means of salvation, the gospel message was the only way that souls could escape eternal damnation. And for that reason, he was willing to accept even death if that's what was required for the gospel message to go forth in the country of England. When the death sentence was handed down, Latimer's response was this, I thank God most heartily that he hath prolonged my life to this end that I may in this case glorify God by that kind of death. In other words, God's, God, thank you for letting me live to this point where I can be burned at the stake for your glory so that the gospel would advance. Here in Latimer's response, the, the man who resided over his trial replied, if you go to heaven in this faith, then I will never come hither as I am thus persuaded. In other words, there was no doubt in this man's mind that Latimer had something very different than he had when it came to understanding the world. He, he could not explain Latimer's faith using his own understanding of the world. So his only conclusion, if, if what you tell me is true about the gospel is what will bring you to heaven, then I have no chance of getting there with what I believe. Friends, that's always our goal. Our goal is to show the world that Jesus offers them something that they can find nowhere else. That Jesus offers the forgiveness of sins. He offers hope for eternity. We are, as we were reminded two weeks ago on Sunday evening, ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We have a fundamental duty to, to tell others about him. 
We may not like to think about it, but, but history has demonstrated over and over that suffering from the name of Christ provides an opportunity to fulfill that duty that we have. Suffering gives opportunity to share the gospel. A few years ago, I read a book entitled, God is Red. Now, the title may not tell you much about the book, but the subtitle will probably clue you in on a little bit as to what the book was about. The subtitle, God is Red, the subtitle is, The Secret Story of How Christianity Survived and Flourished in Communist China. For many decades, Communist China tried to stamp out Christianity. Now, I'll mention again tonight that the government is restarting their attempts. The communists, they, they tried to stamp out Christianity, and they did so by persecuting believers, making public spectacles of the suffering that they inflicted upon believers for their faith in Christ. Many Christians over the decades in China gave their lives for their faith. The result? The church grew to where it now numbers in the millions in China. Regular Chinese men and women, they, they wanted to know about this God who would give such faith that others were willing to suffer and even die for his name. Persecution opened up the door for the gospel message to travel throughout the country as in kitchens, in living rooms, in workplaces, people asked, what is it that makes the Christians different? What causes them to respond like this? The, the more the communist government tried to stamp it out, the faster Christianity spread. I'm confident that the most current undertakings of the government to stamp it out will once more have that same effect. After all, our Lord said the gates of hell will not prevail, cannot prevail against his kingdom. We do not need to seek out suffering. But we do need prepared, be prepared to use it if it comes. We, we can plan to use suffering as a gospel opportunity. Much as our Lord assured his apostles in, in the gospels that, that when they were led before kings or governors, at that moment when they were led there for his namesake, he would give them an opportunity to testify about him. And he would put words into their mouths so that they too, as they suffered, could speak for him. We too can have confidence that God can do the same for us. That he will enable us. If we should suffer for the name of Christ, he will enable us to use that as a testimony to our faith. He will enable us. If we plan now to use any suffering that we face as a gospel opportunity. We should prepare ourselves for possible suffering. We will speak more about this this evening. It is a preparation that we need to undertake. And the fifth idea that we see here in, in Peter's passage is that we must plan to use suffering as a gospel opportunity. As I said at the beginning, in the fictional story, The Prince's Bride, Wesley was prepared to face the suffering of Iocane poisoning. That's fictional suffering. Whereas we might face real suffering. Suffering for the name of Christ. If it comes, 
will we find ourselves prepared? We should prepare ourselves for possible suffering. That's what God calls us to do. That's the challenge that we've seen in our verses. As we come back to this letter here that Peter wrote to believers who were suffering for the name of Christ, we find that we too need to be ready to face the challenge. We need to prepare for the possibility of suffering. In our text, we've seen five ideas. One, anticipate that suffering might come. Two, continually prevent self-inflicted suffering. Three, predetermine a godly response to suffering. Four, recognize that God's will can include suffering. And then five, plan to use suffering as a gospel opportunity. We should prepare ourselves for the possibility of suffering. Let's pray.